Good morning. Uh, praise the Lord that we are able to gather today again for the Lord's Day. And as we uh, have sung songs about God's, um, His Lordship over all things, we praise Him that uh, we could look to Him. And so uh, we transition to a time of the scriptures now. And uh, um, we, we, I think we have to make a couple of announcements. One is uh, next week uh, we have uh, our annual family retreat, our family camp, and that's a church family. It's not only if you have a family, and so those of you that will be there, we're thankful for that. I know some of you guys aren't able to join us, and we hope that next year you'll be able to join us, Um, but uh, for all those that are not coming, just just so that you know, um, we don't have our normal worship services or anything going on at at IBC here, and so we encourage you to join in um, with another fellowship um, enjoy the company of other believers and then come rejoin us uh, the week after when we're regathered. Um, turn to Romans chapter 13 and, and we'll kind of uh, get ourselves started here. <clears throat> we, are, uh, we have been studying through the book of Romans and as we get to uh, this particular portion uh, of Romans 13, it is the final few verses of chapter 13. And I'll remind you again of how the book of Romans is really laid out. It's a letter to the Roman Christians. And as Paul the Apostle has written to them, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is writing down, using his own vocabulary, using his own personality, using all the faculties that God has uniquely blessed him with to communicate God's Word. But even as he does so, God is writing exactly, word by word, what he would desire to be permanently canonized as his holy scriptures. And so the book of Romans, it's a letter, but the book of Romans, right, it flows in the first 11 chapters of dealing with the doctrine of salvation. How is it that sinners like us can actually be declared righteous? Is that right? Is that wrong? How is that possible? And the message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that we are born in a perpetual state and a natural desire for sin. We're not encouraged to sin. We don't need to be trained in sin, right? We we look at our young kids and uh, they learn to say no and cross their arms and throw tantrums. and, And I haven't trained them to that. They've just kind of learned that, and each of us has. Why? Because we are at our core sinners. How does that individual, who will not acknowledge who God is, will not acknowledge that God is their creator, how does that individual, how can that person be declared righteous? And the answer is, he or she can't. It is Jesus Christ who is righteous, will pay the full penalty of my sins, of your sins, if you've placed your faith in Christ, to forgive you of your sins, to pay for the penalty so that you do not have to pay for the penalty in all of eternity. That's the good news of the gospel. That's, the, that's what Paul has laid out for us in detail about our exceeding sinfulness, the amazing gracefulness of God in sending His own Son, Right? The cancellation of debt, if we place our faith in him, all of that, chapters 1 through 11. And then starting in chapter 12, it's the ramifications of that gospel truth in our lives. We, we've seen a bunch of different stuff. Everything from how do we deal with each other, 
right, in terms of loving the brethren? How do we deal with uh, our submission to government? How do we deal with, with uh, um, just loving anybody and everyone that is our neighbor, anyone that's in our proximity as Christians who bear the light of the gospel? I'll, I'll draw you back to the first verse that began our journey in the application of the gospel to all of our life. Look back in Romans 12, verse 1. And it says there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By what? By the mercies of God that he has laid out for 11 chapters. I appeal to you, therefore, by the gospel to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the launching pad of all the things that we have encountered to this point. And I remind you of that. Because this morning we're going to be talking about Romans 13, 11 through 14. And it's about waking up spiritually to the things of the Son of God. Wake up to the sun. See, that's S-O-N, not S-U-N, right? Because we're talking about waking up to him who is the Savior of all those that will place their faith in Jesus Christ unto forgiveness of sins and life. So let me read to you our passage, the passage we'll look at this morning, verses 11 through 14, and then we will pray and look to the scriptures to understand it and apply it well. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's right. Heavenly Father, even as we look to your scriptures now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would enable us to see clearly what we need to understand. And not just to know it in our minds, but to embrace it with our souls, that we might live in a way that honors you, to walk properly as those who are of the day. Help us to live as children of light because you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And help every Christian here to recognize the constant and regular battle we'll have with sin. And if there's any, Lord, that are here that are uncertain about their salvation or or that might be certain but should not be certain about their salvation, would you touch their hearts through the scriptures to know that there is a gospel, a good news, that their souls may be saved, not because of anything they deserve or can do or how badly they feel, but simply because our God is able and he has sent his son to take our place in eternal death. So we praise you for your word. We praise you for the time we have in the scriptures and ask that you bless the rest of this worship service to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans 13, wake up to the sun. So there's a brief outline. There's a time to wake up. Now's the time to wake up. Be done with darkness and then walk in the sun. Let's take a look at our first point, time to wake up. Time to wake up. 
You know, that's like what the, the alarm clock is probably one of the most dreaded sounds, right, that we experience in a given day. And uh, I, I'm, I'm of that regularity where I will wake up now before my alarm clock unless I'm really tired, you know. But those few times that, that the alarm clock has to happen for me to wake up, I hate that sound. It's like, it's like if, there's, if there's a reaction, like a Pavlov's dog kind of reaction, that sound signals like everything that is like crotchety and grouchy and tired and fatigued and mad. Like, so if we were just having a good dinner experience and you turn on the sound of my alarm clock, I think all of a sudden I just turn into, you know, Mr. Hyde, right? I'd just be like, man... Let's just get out of here, you know? Like, I'm done with our dinner, right? Because like, it's like, it's that thing that kind of triggers us. So when we talk about waking up, that's not necessarily the, the best part of, of what we are hoping to experience in that day. We think of waking up as something that is shocking, not pleasant, etc. And that might be true. But there's moments where you have to wake up. In fact, there's not moments. I mean, every day you have to wake up. If you don't wake up, man, that's an entirely different physiological issue. We have to wake up. And so for us as believers, spiritually speaking, verse 11 is a call for us to wake up. It's time to get up. This is our spiritual alarm clock. Not to make us grumpy or upset or feel like we're shorted in terms of our rest, but instead to re-energize us, to send us forward, and to help us to live the life that you actually want to live. To break from the dream or from the nightmare. And to wake up and live this life as God has intended you to live. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. We begin with that first phrase, besides this, you know the time. The besides this, I think, indicates some amount of urgency. You could translate that besides this. The other translations would translate that already, right? But I think the, the point of inserting this little, this little word is to say that beyond all the things that we've talked about up to this point, there is some sense of urgency. It's time to get up. In addition to all of this, already having spoken of all of these things, I know that you already know the time. That's what he says. You already know the time. There's two words in the New Testament Greek for time that is predominantly used. One is chronos, and we get that. That's the normal passage of the second minute hourly time. So if I say, you know, it's time to, you know, to start our worship service, then that means that we have reached a certain hour, a certain minute. That's the time. Then there's this word. The Chiron, and it means more that the season, or, or better, the age. It is the quality of the time period that we are in. This is the way that we use time when we say, man, in our time, in this generation, in this time, right? Or some of our, uh, you know, some of us goaded, you know, white-haired might say, you know, back in our day, right? It's that same phrase. So, he's, so Paul is insisting that there is some sense of urgency besides all of this that I've mentioned. On top of that, make sure that you recognize something. Make sure that you are realizing the season, the age in which you exist. The particular phase of human history. And why is he saying that? Because we live in the final age. In terms of all the things that God has desired to accomplish, he created the universe, Right? He drew a people to himself. 
He made promises to that nation to, and, and to really the, 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 the first father of that nation all the way back to Abraham to bless the world through his people. Then he sends his son to die on the cross that he might present the world an opportunity to be reconciled to God the righteous. What remains? Well, this age, the church age, until the Lord returns. So he is saying, besides all of this, you, you know what time it is. The time is the final hour. And it's not to say that he is saying this is the last seconds and we need to figure out which date. In fact, I think the scriptures would encourage us against setting dates, guessing times, etc. But it's to say that all of this, where we are now, this is the season that is the final season. This is the final episode. Everything is going to come to close soon. So he begins with that, right? He begins with the urgency of saying, you already know the time. He uses a participle saying, you, my Roman Christian friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, you already know. This is it. So if we know the time, then it means that the alarm is ringing and it's time for us to get up. Even if we don't feel like getting up, it's time to get up. I like what Doug Moo mentions. He uses the term slacker. Right? Slackards. It's a good term. And the reason why he uses it is in this context. In a culture that didn't have alarm clocks, right? that, that would be the culture of the Roman Christians as Paul is writing to them, everything was dependent upon daytime and nighttime. Right? Yeah, like if you were in bed and the sun came up in that culture, you were a slacker. I just realized I probably implicated almost everyone in this room. Right? Unless you're getting up for work and you have to get to work early, most of us are probably waking up after the sun has already come up. We would be slackers in that generation. Why? Because like, if there isn't an alarm clock kind of signaling when you should get up, etc., then when the sun comes up, that's your first opportunity to do your work. And considering that their weather is like our weather, so in the summer weather, summer seasons, you can imagine, like, man, I don't want, do not want to be doing work in the fields, Right? at like between noon to two o'clock. I think today it might get up to like a hundred something degrees here in the valley. That's not, I don't want to be outside, right, with that kind of heat. So they would get up before the sun and whatever they could start getting to go into, right, in terms of their work, whatever they could get started, they would get started so that they could take a break when it's the hottest part of the sun. And then when the sun is a little bit, a little, when the intensity is a little less, like two, two thirty, they'd get back to it. Until the sun goes down. So anybody that would stay asleep too long, that person would be a slacker. And I think this is is Paul calling us not to be spiritual slackers. You know the time. The alarm has been ringing. It's time for us to spiritually wake up. I know there's that weird meme guy, right? That keeps going, wake up, wake up. Have you guys seen that? I have two adolescent boys. I've seen almost every one of those video kind of memes. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't look it up. It's, it's, it's just weird. He just keeps yelling, wake up at you, right? I don't know. You can set that to your alarm. But the, the point here, spiritually, we already know. We know that this is the time and that the hour has come for us to wake up from our sleep. So just to clarify, when he says that the hour has come for us to wake up from our sleep, right? The idea, I think, spiritually speaking, is that it's time for us to get about the business of what we are saved to be. 
There's a repeated thing that I think uh, that, that is significant for us throughout the Gospels, throughout the, the, the New Testament, throughout this Roman epistle. But let me emphasize to you that the Gospel is not meant to be an add-on to your life, to make your life a little better, to give you a little insurance for what's to come afterwards. The Gospel is meant to transform you, to give you an opportunity to live as you could live if you live by faith in, in, in Christ to the glory of God. So when he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, he means that spiritually speaking, it's time for you to live wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. It is time for you to live wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. This is the equivalent of Paul saying, would you get up and get to the business of living as a Christian? Right? Constant slumber speaks to a a lethargy, a a slowness, a laziness. Maybe it might imply a forgetfulness that there's stuff you got to do, that there's important things that are going on. And spiritually speaking, it would be this lethargy, this this laziness, this incapacity, this slackness, right? To the things of the Lord, as if we have forgotten that there is a Lord. Guys, this, this phrase is a call to wake up. And not just to live like your neighbor, your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving coworker, your unbelieving classmates, but to live as if Christ makes a difference. To, to do exactly what we read in Romans 12:1, to offer ourselves a living sacrifice, and in Romans 12:2, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. By the renewing of our minds to remember who Christ is and why he died for us. He didn't save you just to make sure that you didn't have to spend eternity in hell. And in the meantime, you could live as good and as delightful a life as you possibly can. He saved you so that you might fulfill a purpose. The very purpose for which all human souls are created. To bring him glory. And that path to bringing him glory might be painful. That path to bringing him glory might might feel embarrassing. That path to bringing him glory may not feel glorious and great in the moment. But in our salvation and in the rejoicing of what, what God has done for us, we start to realize that this is consistently the purposes to which God has sent his son to save me. The gospel has a purpose, and it's time for us to wake up to that. We know the time. In the second part of this, we, we, we know what time it is, and we need to recognize we're almost there. For salvation this is the second part of verse 11. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, it might be weird to some of you guys, right, that we're talking about salvation is nearer as if salvation is a future event. Now, understand that, that the scriptures do this Um, it talks about salvation as a past event sometimes. Sometimes it talks about salvation as a current, you know, you are being saved. And sometimes it talks about salvation as a future event. It's not inconsistent. What it's saying is there is an element of your salvation that, that certainly and absolutely began. You were declared righteous when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You are justified is the usual theological term we use for that, right? When you came to Christ. When you confess your sins and you turn to him for salvation. So you are saved in that sense, right? That's Ephesians 2.8. By the grace of God, you have been saved. See the past tense in our English? Through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. But there's an element where we are continuing to grow in that salvation reality. 
It'd be like 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, see the present tense, it is the power of God. The gospel for us who are currently being saved presently. So you could say in that sense, and we usually use the theological term sanctification, we are growing into the salvation that God has already accomplished in Christ. Then there is the looking ahead. Romans 5, 9 has both the past and the future. It says this, Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, it's already done, much more, Paul says, shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Much more shall we be saved. In other words, we will be saved in the future from God's wrath. So salvation in scriptures can be spoken of in the past, our justification, in the present, our sanctification, in the future, we, the theological term we use for that usually is glorification, that we will, we will be completely saved, we will no longer struggle with sin, and we'll be transformed into the fullness of what this salvation is meant to be. So that's what Paul is speaking of here in Romans 13, 11, the second part. Salvation, that future salvation, when we no longer struggle with sin, when there is all of human history finished and closed, and it is just the nearness of God for our good, that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The conclusion is almost here. We're not, we're not saying that it's in my lifetime. I, I don't know that, right? But it's saying that the end is closer every moment. We can say that about our own, right, mortal existence. My, my death is about 20 minutes closer than it was when I began this, right? Why? Because that's the reality of time kind of marching on. And Paul is saying the end gets closer moment to moment. Our death gets closer moment to mo- moment. The, the, the history's end gets closer moment to moment. The Lord's return gets closer moment to moment. And that means that all the weight and burden that you feel like you are being crushed by will be relieved. All right? It will be relieved with certainty. And it gets closer and closer to that relief. All the anxieties and fears that you've been struggling with, they will be completely removed. We will still deal with them until that final moment comes. But nevertheless, that final moment of relief is coming closer moment by moment. And all the hope that we have in Christ, eternal life, the glory of God, the praise of His glory, be unhindered by sin, all of those hopes will be fully realized. And that's getting closer moment by moment. See, the, the final chapter of salvation is coming. And so Paul is using that eschatological, meaning the last days, those final things, to motivate us today. He is saying, wake up. Spiritually speaking, wake up. The hour has come, and you already know that we are in this final chapter, right? And that it's time for us to get up from our sleep because we are quickly approaching. We're almost there. So make the best use of the time that God has granted to you. Our opening reading this morning was from Ephesians 5. And it says there very clearly, right, that we are to, to utilize the time that we have, to redeem the time that we are granted, to redeem the life that you are granted. You are unique. Your experiences are unique. Your perspectives on things is unique. God has blessed you to be a unique individual. And his anticipation, his declaration in rescuing you from your sin, 
is so that you would use your unique life well for the glory of Christ. Whatever that means, find what that means. Wake up, Christian, and live the life that Christ would call you to live to his glory. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up is verse 11. Then verses 12 and 13, we have be done with darkness. Be done with darkness. Look at verse 12. It says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. There is this interesting contrast between night and day that is found as a thematic thing throughout all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, night is usually like associated with the, the terror or the terrible things that can happen, right? With anxieties and fears. It's also associated with hidden sins, the sins that are shameful even amongst unbelieving society, and so we need to hide those things. That, that's what's usually associated with night. Then there is the day. The day usually constitutes kind of a new hope that we start all over again. That great theologian, the orphan Annie, right, understood that there is always a tomorrow and the sun will come out tomorrow, right? There is always hope because the light of day brings something good. In fact, it goes further to speak of that day when our righteousness will shine like the sun, like it's associating a time when our righteousness will be fully realized and fully revealed. It is connected clearly with the judgment of God, his final redemption of humanity, all of that day. So there is night and there is day. And here we have that same contrast in verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Now listen, I know that the English seems plain, and you could tell that one, it's saying that the night is far away maybe and the day is right here at hand and that is what it means but let's let's make sure we understand this paul is suggesting that whatever is the night and he's going to unpack the deeds of darkness the things that are done in the night etc but all that is sin and darkness that is far gone that's our esv translation of it um we could also translate that that it is sped ahead or that it's i like this phrase it's far spent the night is almost over it's almost fully spent the day is at hand that term means that something is coming close or approaching so if you have ever watched the sunrise and and on two or three occasions i have right i mean i I mean that literally i mean i'm not interested in being up that early but every once in a while you know you're driving because you have to get to someplace early and the sun is rising right and you go from kind of a dark sky to a sky that is a little bit like there's that that duskiness right there's a little bit of light to more light and more light until finally the sun starts to peek out and there's a tremendous flood of light see there's a transition from night to day and this is what paul is saying that it's spiritually speaking The reign of sin in our lives and in the lives of this world, what is breaking and destroying our lives, your neighbor's life, this world, that's already fading. It's far far spent. It's getting towards its end. And what is at hand, what is fast approaching is the rising sun, the day. There is both a certainty about the day coming 
but there is an uncertainty about the exact timing. And I like what Henry Alford says about it. He says, on the certainty of the event, our faith is grounded. We know the day is coming. But the uncertainty of the time, our hope is stimulated and our watchfulness is aroused. In other words, we are, we are encouraged to hope better. We are forced to watch more closely because we know the sun is coming. It's not here yet. It is to know that we are in the darkest part of the night, but the day is coming. It, it's one of my favorite phrases from Good Friday services. Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Have you guys heard that before? That's a phenomenal phrase and one that I cherish because how dark was that Friday, spiritually speaking, when the Son of God is killed on a cross by unrighteous hands? And he's killed because of my sins. He's killed because of your sins. That was a dark Friday, but Sunday's coming. And on that resurrection Sunday, when he rises, when the Son, S-O-N, rises from the grave, then we see what God has planned all along. There is night, but that night is fading, and the day is at hand. So, how shall we live? You put off, and you put on. Look at the next phrase, verse 12. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, I want us to to catch very clearly the the particular contrasts that are being made in these these two phrases. There is, and I'm using the term put off, cast off is is great because that's really what it is. It means to take something off and and suggest that you're taking off forcibly, you know? It's like when you take off your coat and you slam it down because, you know, your team lost or something, you know what I mean? Like, it, it has some amount of passion to it. It means to cast off one and to, to put off the other, put on the other, but, but uh, I'm saying put off and put on so that we're keeping the contrast very closely parallel. It means that you are putting off something, you're taking something off intentionally, and that you're putting something else on. That, that's a pattern we find in Scripture regularly, right? That you take off and you put on. Put off and put on. And what we put off is the deeds of darkness, is the works of darkness. And we put on is the armor of light. Here's the second thing I want you to catch in terms of those contrasts. You do take off something and you do put on something. You take off the works of darkness. That phrase, maybe, at least for me, it's more helpful if I translated the deeds of darkness. The things that we do that are sin and connected with darkness. We're to put off that junk. But what do we put on? In the parallel, you would expect, or at least I would expect, right, that you put off the deeds of darkness, so you put on the deeds of light. Is that what our text says? No. Our text says you put off, you cast off the works, the deeds of darkness, you put off all that stuff that is doing sin, and instead of doing righteousness... What you put on is the armor of light. Why is that significant? Because I think what that's instructing us to understand, even in in the apostle's mind, is to cast off sin, yes. But what we put on is not our own strength. It's not our own doing. And if you're struggling with sin, and you're struggling with with certain sins that that you've been grappling with with for some time, recognize that part of your failure might simply be because you're you're just trying to brute force this mess. That you think that you could cast off sin, right? But if you could have, if you as a human being had the capacity to cast off sin, what didn't you need, what did you need Jesus for? 
right? I could have just cast off sin myself without Christ. I could have made myself righteous eventually without him. Get better and better at this all by myself in my own strength. That's not the call of Scripture. We are to put on the enablement, the power, the implementations of spiritual victory that is given to us in Christ. In other words, the armor of light suggests that what we put on is those things that help us to have victory over sin and darkness. You put off clearly the things that you do. But what you put on is the enablement of God through the Holy Spirit, through his scriptures, through faith in him, through confession of sins to God and to others. And what you put on is a transformation of life that really is dependence upon God's armor, not upon your own strength. And let me say one thing about the term armor. I think we might be tempted to say something like, hey, the armor is, uh, is defensive. This is defensive because that's what armor is versus offensive weapons. And, and the term is used more broadly. It just means armaments. It's your tools for battle. And, and we are clearly in a spiritual war, but even as Paul delineates that, in Ephesians 6, he talks about the armor of God and the need to take it up, and he describes the different parts of it, the belt of truth, <clears throat> breastplate of righteousness, shoes um, uh, that are the readiness of the gospel of peace, etc. But in other places, he'll talk about the same kind of, he'll use the same uh, metaphor of armor, but he'll use different things with it. Right? It was the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians 6, 14. In 1 Thessalonians 5:8, Paul says, since the day we belong, or, but since we belong to the day, see the same theme, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of righteousness? No, of faith and love. So see, the point is not, hey, let's figure out, okay, breastplate, what's my breastplate? Yo, what's, what's our breastplate? Let's make sure, you got your breastplate on? You got your helmet on? Right? The point is to not to emphasize the particular right, armaments, but the armor as a whole, the dependence upon God as a whole. What protects us? The righteousness that is given to us in Christ. What protects us? Our faith and love directed towards God. Ours are works, deeds of darkness. His is the power to overcome his armor of light. So if you think about what kind of power the Christian has, think Iron Man, not Superman. Superman is strong no matter what, right? You guys realize that, right? He's all Clark Kent with glasses and like, hey, you know, Mr. I forgot, you know, where he works and all that, right? Hi, Lois Lane, right? Like he's like this nerdy dude. But if you shot him, the bullet would just and then hit his eye and fall off. Even though he's Clark Kent. Why? Because he's not, he's not, transformed it he just that's that's the dude he is he's just powerful as his nature is iron man is just a really smart guy in a really powerful suit and if you think in those terms we're not necessarily that smart because i guess we're more like roadie right yeah not that roadie's not smart i mean he's he's a he's a colonel i think right but but the idea being that he didn't invent the suit he just puts it on and goes fight that's us We don't invent the suit. You are not the suit. But God has granted to us the armor of light that we might walk in a way that is honorable and is worthy. I I like the phrase, and we'll return to it later, but in Colossians 1, 9 and 10, it says, And so from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul the Apostle is saying, Colossian Christians, we, since, since we've heard of your salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you, that you would grow in the knowledge of his will and the spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he continues this. So as to walk, in other words, this is the implication of growing in that knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, the, the point is to end up walking in a manner that's, that's pleasing to the Lord, a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means, the price that he has paid to rescue and to save you and to bring you to himself. See, the point is that we have power as Christians. We need to put off the junk in our lives that still clings to us and put on that power, and that power is not in ourselves, in our own ability, in our craftiness, in our, you know, in, in how, how strong-willed we are. The power is in full dependence upon all things that Christ has given to us in salvation, the Holy Spirit has given to us in His Word, and the direction of the thinking and the transformation of our renewed minds, as Romans 12, 2 talks about, to the glory of service to Christ our Lord. So there's night and day, there's the put on and put off, and there's a simple command, verse 13, let us walk properly, walk in the day. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Let me just say a couple words about walking, right? This is a metaphor that the New Testament loves, walking as kind of an expression of your lifestyle. And I guess I get that, right? Like, you know, if I, if I had a certain cool walk, then you might go, oh, man, that's a cool dude. That's a cool pastor, right? And if I had a kind of like I'm a librarian, I got to get to my, then you go, oh, that guy, is, he's a studious pastor, right? Like, I, I think there's something to that analogy, but more so, I think the scriptures are talking about going from point A to point B. Point A being the moment that we are converted to point B, the moment that we go to be with him, or that he comes to snatch us in the, into the clouds, right? There's a walking, a manner of getting through this life that is from point A to point B. How do I get from here to there? It describes how we do stuff. Not even the, the clear, right, direction or, or like if it's a little bit of zigzaggy or is it straight. It just means this is how we live. So let us live, let us walk properly. So properly is a great translation. It means to walk in a manner that's appropriate or decorous, right? Exercise proper decorum, right? That's the idea. Um, becomingly, you know, we saw in Colossians 1.10, to walk in a manner worthy. I like what, um, uh, what Morris says about it. One commentator says about it. He says, Paul often uses the metaphor of walking, listen, for the steady, if unspectacular progress that should characterize the Christian. Walking is a great metaphor. Why? Because nothing there's, there's nothing spectacular about this, right? It's like, how are you walking? It's kind of like saying, how are you living? It's not spectacular. It's not like, I'm not, this is how I'm sprinting, right? This is how I'm web-slinging, right? This is, this is not any of those. This is just, this is how I live. The normal kind of routine of going through this life. And it ought to be done. We ought to live in such a way that has propriety, that is proper, NIV translates this, 
to walk or behave decently. NASB translates it, behave properly. New King James says to walk. It uses the term walk again, but walk properly. And one New Testament commentator says it means to walk in loveliness of life. Flowery, but good. It means to walk in such a way that delights our Savior. Not in deeds of darkness, right? Let us walk properly, verse 13 says, as in the daytime, as if we are children of light. Not in darkness, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, and in quarreling and jealousy. Listen, these are, there are three pairs, right, of sins that are connected with Paul's thinking about what it means to walk in darkness. The first pair is orgies and drunkenness. And I know that conjures all kinds of crazy things, but think of it this way. The term for orgies is revelry or carousing. I think the NASB translates it carousing. Carousing and drunkenness. It is the primary emphasis of that first two pairing is to speak of the abuse of strong drink. This is unbridled inebriation. This is access to the point of public misconduct. This is... A few people partying and having a good time at the expense of their peaceable neighbors. It fits, right, categorically of the idea of some of the sins that are characterized by sins or deeds of darkness. The second set is a little bit more, it's not so public, it's a little bit more private. It is sexual immorality and sensuality. Sexual immorality, I mean, it just means illicit or, or, or um, unrighteous sexual conduct. The Greek word at its base literally means bed. So it's just talking about sexual sin. The second word, sensuality, that's a little bit more of an intense word. And you say, well, sex is an intense word. It is. All right? But I'm saying this word, um, Arkin Hughes says it well. He says this word for sensuality or debauchery, as I think some translations will translate that. He says, this is one of the ugliest words in the Greek language. It describes one who is not only given to immorality, to sexual sin, but is incapable of feeling shame. You get what I'm saying? Like, like the first word in that pairing, right? The first word has to do with that person involves themselves in sexual sin. The second word, though, means that they involve themselves in a lifestyle of sexual sin and have no shame whatsoever about it. It's another level. But paired together, you see, then again, this is unrestrained sexual sin. It's the more private between the two. But nevertheless, it fits for deeds of darkness. This is exactly the kind of sin we expect in darkness. What is weird in this list of the deeds of darkness is not orgies and drunkenness. It's not sexual morality and sensuality. It's this last pairing. Look at it. Quarreling and jealousy. Is that deeds of darkness? Not in the way that we would naturally think of it. It almost seems like this pair is out of place. But it suggests that this is part of what Paul is concerned about. Not every Christian is struggling with sexual sin. Some may be. Not every Christian is is struggling with not just sexual sin, but then being open and happy and glad about it. Maybe some are sinfully doing that. But there's a lot of Christians that might struggle with this form of the deeds of darkness, quarreling and jealousy, of holding grudges, muttering against what other people get to do and I don't get to do, right? 
There is this capacity in some of us to be so self-absorbed, so quick to judge, so mindful that someone is doing something that maybe they shouldn't do, that I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do that, that it becomes discord among us, quarreling and jealousy, and it's a deed of darkness. All of that is to be cast aside, right? We are to walk in the light as children of the day, not walking in darkness. And the examples that Paul chooses to give here that we should cast off in terms of the deeds of darkness are these, right? The abuse of strong drink, unrestrained lust, and the breakdown of fellowship. That those are the deeds of darkness that he would like to pinpoint. Now listen, it might seem strange, especially the first two. I mean, we probably have some experience individually with some of the last set, right, of quarreling and jealousies and envy, etc. But the first two, it might sound strange, and it is a little strange to me, that Paul needs to exhort a Christian church, right, that they need to put off these things that even the Romans and the Greeks at that time believed to be somewhat wicked as well. The unbelieving Romans and, and Greeks, that is to say, right? But here's the reason why it's an exhortation that Paul needed to give. Because of our past. Some of us come out of a dark past, and we have some hanging-ons of some of these things that we are rescued from. Deeds of darkness, abuse of strong drink, excess inebriation, right? Or sexual sins. We, we bear some of that from our past. Presently, some in our congregation here may be struggling with such sins. It's not outside the realm of possibility. Christians struggle with sin. If you're struggling with sin, right, confess, repent. Confess to the Lord first, but then also confess to a brother or sister that you can trust. Why? Because that is part of the, the humbling of yourself in recognizing that you need God's armor and not your own willpower to overcome. Perhaps it's not the past, Maybe it's the present. Perhaps it's something in the future. Some, some future reality that could splinter our fellowship and our struggle with one another because of deep-rooted sin. But see, there's hope for every believer. Because where we began in all of this in chapters 1 through 11 is the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners just like you and me. It is rescue for all of us. And I remind you again, whenever we talk about the darkest deeds that are done in secret, we're reminded of what the gospel is capable of doing. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Oh, 9 through 11, sorry. Um, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Similar list as what he gave here, right? Those that are given to strong drink, those that are given to sexual immorality, etc. But listen to verse 11, because every Christian who loves the grace of God for us has to hear verse 11. And such were some of you. The Corinthian Christians... As Paul labels these type of sins that are the deeds of darkness, there are many there that would say, dude, that was me, right? Even if they don't think it out loud, they lower their eyes in recognition that that was me. He says, such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That, that beautiful phrase, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That reminds us of why the gospel matters. So Christian, if you're struggling with these things, it's time to do something where you're trusting in Christ and His power, not your own. Why? Because this isn't what we're about. We have been washed. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. So we ought to walk as children of light. This is not us anymore. And we need to choose to walk in the light. In the light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual morality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Oh, sorry. I messed that up. But, oh yeah, there you go. But walk in the sun. <clears throat> walk in the sun. S-O-N, sun, right? Verse 14. But put on the Lord, Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I just want to make two simple points, right? When it comes to, um, when it comes to uh, this last verse, right? I think my battery might have just died. It's not making any light. Yeah. The first is that we are to clothe ourselves in Christ. Clothe yourselves in Christ. Look at that first part. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already used the put off, put on metaphor to cast off the deeds of darkness. So he's expanding on what those deeds of darkness might look like. And he's saying now, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, one, it means that we are to be identified and united with Christ. It is what baptism represents. That we are connected with Christ in such a way that we died with him that we are raised to a new life in Him, it's all an illustration of our union with Him. That if Christ has actually died on the cross for my sins, then my sins are actually killed and paid for in full. That when He was raised from the dead, that resurrection to life meant that my sins are not just forgiven, but that I now have life in Christ. It's about union and identity of recognizing who I am. So when it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's saying, put Him on. Let him be you and establish him as you. I like what one uh, pastor says. He says, when I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be a part of me all day, to go where I go, to do what I do. They cover me and make me presentable to others. That's the purpose of clothes. In the same way, the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning, make him a part of your life that day intend that he go with you wherever you go and that he act through you in everything you do call upon his resources live your life in christ i like that it's not perfect it's not perfect because see right like when i put on clothes the clothes doesn't influence or direct me all right i direct the clothes you know i move and clothes moves with me right this is the opposite in the sense when we put on christ it is to say that we are to put on him and what happens to us is that his power his influence his pleasure, his purposes, that becomes infused to our pleasure, our purposes, and we put him on, meaning that we constantly are thoughtful of what it means to live for him. What this means is the gospel is not a contract, right? It's not a nam. If you'll say a prayer, throw a cone in a fire, if you show up to church regularly, you know, if you say or claim that you made a prayer one day, that's all I need from you, it's not a contract. It's not a, hey, I've stuck to the, the terms of my deal, so you owe me on your side. It's not an in-app purchase. 
that enhances this game that is your life, right? It's not the sprinkles on top of your cupcake so that you can eat your cake and have a little bit of Jesus on top. The gospel is that you deserve eternal hell. And when I say you, I mean all of us, all of humanity, every sinner, which is every human. But you have been offered forgiveness of your sins and the full payment of the wrath that you should have received for eternity. And if you place, if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ, you, you might be forgiven so that you might glorify the God who would love you so impossibly as to send his son to take your place in death. The so that is very precious and important. You're not rescued just so that you can do whatever you want. You're rescued so that your life purchase, purpose might be Jesus Christ. Let me say one, one final word. Could you guys advance to the last one? Leave no room for sin. This is the last thing that Paul would leave us with and the last thing I'll leave you with. Verse 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and hopefully that makes some sense to you, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let me just say this. All he's saying in there is make no provision, make no preparation. Don't don't make a way for it. In simple English, it's simply saying don't offer a plan. Don't give it room. Don't welcome him in. Kick sin out of your life. Make no provision for the flesh. You struggle in a certain area, well, then that area you need to kind of quarantine yourself from in whichever way you can, right? You need to get accountability concerning that. You need to seek the Lord concerning it. You need to do something about that to push that out, to remove yourself from that. That means that we, all of us, will be different in some of our convictions concerning our leisure time, concerning where we'll go or how we'll do stuff right? Why? Because we're protecting our own souls, and our souls are different from your souls. So I might have certain, certain leanings in terms of this I won't do for me. I'm not going to judge you about that, and I don't have a right to tell you how to live, but, right, even if it's not a sin, I'm going to stay away from it, and you should have similar things like that, because you're trying to leave no room for sin. You're not just thoughtful about repenting when you sin, but you're making no provision. You're trying to push it out. You're trying to clear the space and protect yourself from future sin. That's what it means to leave no room for sin. I was going to give you the illustration of Augustine's conversion, but I think we're running out of time. Let me just say, Augustine was converted. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord. If you look into it yourself, you'll find Augustine confesses that he was known in every whorehouse along the Mediterranean coast. And how was he converted? He hurt some girl some little girl next door, singing this weird song that he knows is not a song that he has ever heard. And the song literally, you know, uh, in, in Latin means take up and read, take up and read. So he grabbed the scriptures. He assumed this is God's message. He read it. He read this verse, right, these verses here. And he says immediately he knew the day sprung into his heart. And he knew he needed to live for the Lord. You are saved and you are offered salvation, not just for the sake of fire insurance, for you to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Live, brother and sisters, brothers and sisters, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us as we think about even the idea of waking up to live for the Son, that we might live our lives well for your purpose and glory. You are our God. And what a majestically gracious thing to send your Son to die for us. 
So Lord, let us not just claim a salvation that is free. It is. But to relish and cherish and to delight in the salvation we have, the righteousness accomplished through him so that we might honor you. You are our God. May we live for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.